0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. Okay. <clears throat> so it's really lovely to be here, uh, to meet all of you and to feel such a, a big group, such a powerful Dharma gathering As as you just heard, I teach in quite a few places around the world, and many of those places do not have this kind of opportunity to come together as a group and to, as I said in the guided meditation, to really support each other in deepening wisdom and compassion. Now, perhaps uh, because this is a new group to me, uh, I'm new to most of you, I might take just a few minutes to say a little bit more about my background and where I'm coming from. You heard my official bio. But I think it's uh, in New Zealand where I grew up, in the native culture, Maori culture, it's traditional before you start speaking to say where you're coming from in terms of your family lineage, the area you grew up in, where you feel an affinity for the land. So normally you would recite your genealogy, your family ancestry, and then say your mountain and your river. Now I don't have Maori blood, but that way of introducing is intended to create connection, to help people find commonality so I could say, my in terms of my ancestry, my Dharma lineage, as you heard, is uh, through the Insight Meditation Society. Um, Joseph Goldstein and Gill. I have two Dharma dads, you could say, Joseph and Gill, and Max, who I think most of you know, Max Erdstein, is a Dharma sibling because we were in that program together. So we have that connection. I grew up mostly in New Zealand. You could say my river or my uh, sea is the Pacific Ocean. So we share that in common. And as I was sitting here, I was just bringing to mind the beach where I grew up and seeing the sparkling sea and remembering also being here um, by the ocean. Then in other communities where I teach It's helpful for some people to hear my social location. So this is another way of letting people know, literally and metaphorically, where am I coming from? So straight, white woman. Class is a little more challenging, not wealthy. I realized when I lived at IMS that many North American people, when they hear an accent like mine, they hear British accents as upper class. This is not an upper class accent, (laughs) just so you know. And last five and a half years, I've been living on Dana, so that puts me in some ways outside that system. So it's interesting. So hopefully that's just enough of a flavor for you to get a sense of where I'm coming from. And I'd love to hear more from all of you at the end of this um, talk. I already mentioned a couple of times uh, just this theme of wisdom and compassion, because for me that's the heart, the foundation, the goal, the purpose of everything that we do. So this morning I wanted to speak very directly about that. Partly because this need for balance is woven throughout the teachings. I think most of you are familiar with the idea of the middle way. After the Buddha's uh, full enlightenment, one of the first discourses he gave was on the need for balance. The need to find the middle way between, on one hand, self-indulgence and on the other, self-mortification or self-torture. Because in the India of his day, those were the two extremes that people tended to fall into. Today, I think, we still have the tendency to fall into self-indulgence. Self-mortification, on the other hand, in terms of self-torture, is not quite so common. Back in India then, people would do things like sleep on beds of nails or restrict how much food they ate in the service of uh, their spiritual practice. Fortunately for us, that's not so common today. But as uh, Joseph Goldstein has pointed out, what is very common is a kind of psychological self-torture. So many of us have this tendency to be extremely hard on ourselves, very critical, very self-judgmental. So this metaphor of the two wings to awakening being wisdom and compassion has been very helpful in my own practice to help me keep in balance. And I've seen that in many students too, these very common feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness and self-loathing. So keeping in mind this framework of the two wings to awakening can help us see if, where, our practice is out of balance in some way. So wisdom here is the ability to see clearly, to develop insight. And compassion is the willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet it with kindness, and where possible, to help it to release. And pe- perhaps because we're in the insight tradition, I think we have tend to put more emphasis on wisdom than the compassion wing. And yet, as I've been emphasizing, these two really do need to be in balance if we're metaphorically going to fly So I can recognize with hindsight in my own practice times where one wing got too far ahead of the other. And that gap is uncomfortable. Perhaps some of you have experienced something similar for yourselves. So, for example, when the wisdom wing gets a little too far ahead of the compassion wing, we might put a lot of emphasis on seeing clearly. And at first, those insights might be, you could say, more psychological in nature. We start to recognize our own personal habit patterns. And at this stage, it might seem like our so-called defilements are being revealed to us in full, extra-high definition. And it can be painful. You may have heard the old cliche that self-knowledge is not always good news. And this can be true in the early stages of the practice when it feels like we're seeing our neuroses very clearly and yet we don't have the self-compassion to be able to hold that clear seeing. Then as the practice deepens, we might uh, start to see more clearly into the three universal characteristics of all experience. The truth that everything is impermanent and each And because of that impermanence, it's unreliable, unsatisfactory, dukkha. And there is no permanent, stable self in here to whom all this is happening, anatta. And at times, seeing clearly into these three characteristics can be quite unsettling, quite disturbing, because they challenge very deeply held beliefs about who we are and how the world is. So at these times, again, we might need to consciously cultivate the compassion wings so we have the resilience to be able to meet these insights with some degree of balance. So that's some ways that the wisdom can get ahead of the compassion. At other times, the compassion can get ahead of the wisdom when we start to connect more fully with the truth of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, we might open up and start to feel our own and others' pain so intensely that we feel overwhelmed, we fall into grief or despair. And we don't have to look very far to find this dukkha. These days, thanks to modern media, it's being pumped into our living rooms 24-7, And this is on top of the dukkha in our communities and in our families and in ourselves. So it's not surprising that at times we would feel overwhelmed. And at those times we might need to consciously turn back to the wisdom wing of the practice to see that other two universal characteristics of impermanence, that this too can and will change, and non-self That even dukkha comes and goes and none of it is personal. And then it becomes possible to taste moments of deep freedom even in the midst of these difficulties. So bringing awareness to each of these two wings of wisdom and compassion and learning how to balance them is really the art of the practice. So I'd like to focus a little more today on compassion because as I said earlier in the insight tradition I think we tend to put a lot of emphasis on wisdom and compassion is this willingness to turn towards suffering. The Pali word is karuna and usually translated as compassion which literally means suffering with. Sometimes it's referred to as the heart that responds, vibrates in response to another's pain, or to our own pain. For most people, this is not the usual way that we relate to Dukkha. Usually when something's painful, we turn away from it. So we might think, well, wait a minute, I this isn't what I signed up for. I came to my spiritual practice to get away from suffering. Suffering hurts. Why would I want to get closer to it? And that's a very good question. One possible answer is that, well, inevitably there are times in our life when pain, suffering is inescapable. So it can be a very useful training to start with small aspects of dukkha And sort of metaphorically build our compassion muscle before we get slammed with any of the big challenges. One analogy for this process of turning towards pain, I sometimes think it's like, again, coming back to the ocean, to the sea, when we're swimming in the ocean and suddenly one of those monster waves appears, You know, our instinct is usually to turn around and either try to swim away from it or if we can touch the ground, run away from it. Usually if we do that, we end up getting slammed. But if we can have the courage and the presence of mind to turn and face it and to dive just before it hits, yeah, it's turbulent for a while, but we usually come out the other side in much better shape. So... As I just mentioned, turning towards suffering, it does take courage. It does take presence of mind. Unfortunately, as with all the teachings that the Buddha offered, this is a training. It's a quality that we can gradually cultivate and develop. So as I think many of you know, compassion is one of the four Brahma practices that starts with metta or kindness, Compassion is the second of these, and it's said that uh, when metta or goodwill, kindness, friendliness, turns towards difficulty or suffering, it uh, flowers naturally as compassion. So there's a quote from the Tibetan tradition that talks about how all these four Brahmavihara qualities work together. It's from Longchen Rabjampa, a 14th century Tibetan Buddhist monk. He says, Out of the soil of friendliness, or metta, grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, karuna, watered with tears of joy, mudita, under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity, upeka. So metta is the soil from which the other heart qualities grow and develop. And seeing compassion as a beautiful bloom sounds inspiring, but sadly in mainstream society, uh, compassion generally hasn't been highly valued. And if we look at the state of the world right now, it can feel, at least for me, that we're in an epidemic, an epidemic of non-compassion, We seem to be reaping the results of this undervaluing of compassion on a society wide scale. Perhaps because of our uh, this mainstream society's tendency towards perfectionism and idealism and competitiveness, for many of us the idea, even just the idea of cultivating compassion can seem quite foreign, even threatening. So often as we start to orient towards compassion, what we come into direct contact with are the obstacles to it. But fortunately, if we can approach these obstacles in the right way, they can actually become vehicles that help to develop compassion. So I thought to take just a few minutes to talk about some of the obstacles, the challenges that can get in the way of compassion when we try to develop it. And in my own experience, uh, looking back over the arc of trying to develop this quality, the first challenge for me came from basically being completely clueless about what compassion even was. But I was fortunate because the first 10-day retreat that I sat was in Thailand with Western teachers who put an equal emphasis on wisdom and compassion in their teachings. But on that first retreat, I, didn't, I literally didn't hear the word compassion through that entire retreat. Nevertheless, I was inspired enough by that retreat to go back again three months later and to do another retreat with those same teachers. And on the second retreat, they just talked about compassion over and over and over again. And it was a total revelation. I almost felt like I'd been hit over the head by a sledgehammer and sort of cracked open. and I just kept hearing compassion, compassion, compassion. So I was very inspired because I realized that for me this was almost the missing ingredient. It was um, what was missing in my family, it was missing in my community, it was missing in the f- most of the friends I had before I became interested in the Dharma. So this retreat was very inspiring for me. And at the end of it, I went and thanked the teachers for their radical new approach. And they laughed and said, it's exactly the same as what we taught last time. (laughs) And I was like, what? I completely didn't believe them. But these particular teachers were unusual in that they do literally teach the same thing on every retreat. And they have a book of their teachings. So I went and checked the book, and they were right. (laughs) But it was like that first retreat, I just didn't have the receptors in my being to even take in this word compassion, let alone the direct experience of it. So I offer that just as encouragement if there are any of you who feel a little bit sort of wary about the the idea of compassion or or find it uh, a, a challenging practice. There's a second very common obstacle to compassion, one that's quite natural, and that is fear. And it's natural because we are, to some extent, hardwired to avoid experiences that are are painful and potentially life-threatening. So it's not surprising that we would have a deep and, at times, instinctual fear of moving towards difficulty instead of away from it. And there's a caveat here. The, the reason that there are two wings to awakening is that compassion needs to be supported by wisdom. So we do need to cultivate clear seeing or insight so that we can distinguish between what we might think of as wise fear and just knee-jerk uh, conditioning. Wise fear keeps us out of genuine danger. And... It may take some trial and error, but we eventually learn to distinguish between genuine compassion and what's sometimes called idiot compassion, which is a little bit harsh, foolish compassion or unwise compassion, ways that we can get caught in trying to help everyone with everything all the time, which of course is harmful to ourselves, but sometimes also harmful to the people we're trying to help. If it's not done with skill, we can end up getting in a relationship that's sort of enabling or codependent in some way. So we need the wisdom wing to know when to say no and when to say yes. But the point of this wisdom is not to make us immune from suffering. Paradoxically, it's to make us more vulnerable to it. Because unless we have the capacity to open to the 10,000 sorrows, we're not also open, able to open to the 10,000 joys either. So part of this training in compassion is to be able to open to the full spectrum of our lives and not just a narrow bandwidth. Recognizing the times when it's beneficial to open our hearts but also to honor those times when we know that it's not beneficial when perhaps the heart does need to stay closed you know sometimes i think people have a misunderstanding that if i'm being compassionate i'm just wide open all the time but nothing in life is steady state and the wisdom is knowing how to acknowledge and honor the natural rhythm of the heart. So I seem to be talking about the sea a lot uh, this morning. There's another analogy for this. uh, You all know what uh, sea anemones are, those little creatures with tentacles that live in rock pools. So when I was a child, I spent some time living in Scotland, and we would go on family holidays to the beach, and my father would take us around the rock pools and show us all these amazing little jelly things, red and brown and orange, with their little tentacles waving. And he showed me how you could touch them and they'd kind of turn into this smooth blob of jelly. Their tentacles would retract. And as a five-year-old, I thought this was magic. And of course, I wanted to know why. And later I found that when their tentacles are open, they can feed, but they're also vulnerable. So at times they need to close in order to be safe. You can't keep the tentacles closed all the time because then you don't get nourishment. And at the time I was exploring the um, the sense in, in my own heart of opening and closing, and I thought, well, that's like the sea anemone. You know, there's this tension between wanting to stay safe and being able to feed, and it's very natural that we have these movements of opening and closing. Because vulnerability is what what allows us to find nourishment through contact with others. So just in case you need any more convincing about this, uh, there's more and more social science research that's finding the link between our capacity for vulnerability and our capacity for happiness. So some of you probably know of Brene Brown. She's a professor of sociology at Houston University. And she spent over 10 years studying vulnerability and courage and authenticity and shame. Um, I'm not sure whether she's a meditator or not, but the conclusions that she's come to in this research uh, do sound a lot like the processes that we go through in our meditation practice. And she does uh, even quote Pema Chodron in one of her interviews. So I'd like to read you just a little part uh, of something she said in an interview where she's talking about shame and vulnerability and happiness. She says, if you have a Petri dish, one of those lab dishes, and you have shame in there that pervasive feeling of not being good enough, not being whatever enough, thin enough, or rich enough, or popular enough, or promoted enough, or loved enough. It only needs three things to survive in that Petri dish and to grow, to grow exponentially and to creep into every corner and crevice of your life. And what it needs is secrecy, silence, and judgment but if you have the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and you douse it with some empathy, you share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say, you're not alone, shame dies. (coughs) She goes on to say, Pema Chodron defines compassion as knowing your darkness well enough that you can sit in the dark with others. And she says, which is why it's so ironic to me that people think that vulnerability is weakness when really letting ourselves fully soften into feeling is one of the most courageous things we can do. Emotions won't kill you, but not feeling them will. Our fear of emotion can absolutely kill us. Pain won't kill us, but numbing pain kills people every single day. We're the most obese, in-debt, medicated, workaholic, addicted adults in human history. Pain won't kill you, but numbing the pain kills people every minute of every day. So what's the antidote? To increase our tolerance for discomfort. And to do that, we practice being uncomfortable. So you could say that this is an aspect of compassion practice, is this training in being willing to be uncomfortable and to meet it with empathy. As she, Brene Brown says, empathy is what makes a difference. In her words, if you can share your story with someone who can hear it and look back at you and say, you're not alone, this is what helps the shame to be released. And to me, what she's describing there is compassion. It's a process, you could say, of listening to others' pain, but just as importantly, listening to our own pain, of befriending ourselves. So one way in, I think most of us have at least some capacity at times to sit with our friends and to just be with somebody who's struggling to meet them in a way that's open and caring and compassionate. So we can train in offering that to others so that eventually we can offer that same friendliness to ourselves. Because for many of us, the self-compassion is actually the hardest piece. And I think Max said there was a self-compassion day long here last weekend. Is that right? Was any of you go to that? Great. Yeah, happy for you, so maybe we can share some experiences at the end. So I think of this process of compassion as being, uh, in some ways, a process of listening. It's about tuning in or attunement, listening to our own and others' experiences with as much presence as possible. And later, in the Buddhist tradition, this link between listening and compassion became more explicit in the image of Kuan Yin, who's the archetype of uh, of compassion. She's known as she who hears the cries of the world. And in the Zen tradition, it's said that she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body, which is a pretty striking image. And this metaphor of listening requires us to settle back and to receive and to respond rather than to react. But this receptivity is not just passive because out of that deep listening, the wisdom helps us to know the appropriate response. I don't see any Quan Yin images here, but some of you might... uh, see that often she's portrayed sitting in this kind of position. So one half of her body, she's in the library so you might check her out later. (laughs) I don't know if she's sitting like this, but you can see from this image half of her body is in meditation and the other half is poised, ready to spring into action. So she's really embodying that balance again between wisdom and compassion. So she's also attuned to her own inner world and to the outer world. And in my own Brahma practice, there was a significant shift when I... Initially, I thought that these practices were about trying to manufacture kindness or manufacture compassion. And for me, there was a significant turning point when I understood that it's not about trying to make something happen. It's about listening to what's actually already there. And for most of us, what's already there is at times obscured by what are known as the visiting defilements or the adventitious uh, defilements, hindrances that get in the way. But those hindrances are not innate. So if we're able to listen more fully we can start to tune into these flickers of kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. And the more we attune to them and learn to recognize their frequency or their signal, the stronger that signal can become. So in my own experience, uh, as I started to do this, I got a little more capacity to... Uh, cultivate self-compassion and I started to see it as a kind of what we could think of as a universal solvent for working with difficult mind states so when painful emotions come up if we can turn towards them with care with acceptance perhaps at times even appreciation not only does the pain of them lessen but we're strengthening both the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion Because our capacity to be with life's difficulties grows. And the more we can stay with what's difficult, the more we can see clearly that it's impermanent and it's impersonal. When we don't take it so personally anymore, it naturally releases more quickly. And yet, for so many of us, as I said earlier, just the idea of self-compassion can be very challenging. I saw this in myself, I see it in a lot of the students I work with. And just to normalize this, I'd like to share a passage I found from a psychologist who's been working in the field of self-compassion. And he says, Commonly for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, the beginning of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness can be viewed with suspicion as being soft or self-indulgent or not deserved. This usually indicates a fear of developing or experiencing self-compassion. The individual is often afraid that if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant, or unlovable. Some think that they will be punished for their self compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So, in the beginning, we might encounter a lot of these kinds of obstacles to self compassion. And sometimes I've worked with students uh, who say things like, Well, you know, I like the idea of self compassion, but I just can't find phrases that feel authentic to me or genuine or honest. So with one of those students I was exploring with her, well, what might actually, what can you get behind? What phrases do you feel are authentic and genuine? And we started trying out some different possibilities. And what she came up with sounded something like this. May I be willing at some point in the future to have the intention to move in the direction <laughs> of beginning to cultivate some degree of compassion towards myself. And that was true. That was a start. That was true for her. And yes, it was at a nice, safe distance, but as she got familiar with that, she could begin to start to bring it closer even that even having that much intention is uh can be powerful and we don't actually need to use phrases at all you know we can be very creative with these practices so if the phrases are getting in the way we can just drop them you know some of us are more embodied uh some of us visualize so we can use whatever works and for me sometimes in daily life if something's Challenging, I might just for a moment just touch my heart very briefly. Don't need to make a big show of it. Um, make myself self-conscious, but just like, oh yeah, that hurts. Okay. Breathing in, breathing out. Okay. And just flash on the, this intention. For some people, the image of Kuan Yin might be a resource or a teacher that they've had a compassionate interaction with just remembering the, the look of compassion There's many different ways we can start to just flash on and incline the heart and mind in that direction. Because once we've opened up some space around it, we're in a better position to understand the universality of suffering. And again, this brings the wisdom aspect back into play. Often, the challenge when we are suffering, though, is that our world tends to collapse and contract into me and my suffering. At least that's true for me at times. And so to consciously try to remember, I'm not the only one. There are other people, all of us, all human beings at different times experience loneliness or rejection or despair or... Illness and financial challenges, and so on. So, I have a slightly gross example of how I practiced with this a few years ago when I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts. And at that time, I had had to, I had a chronic complaint, and I had to take a cocktail of three really powerful antibiotics. And I had been warned that they could create intense nausea, but I generally have a pretty good stomach, so I thought, "Mm, yeah, it'll be a bit uncomfortable, but it'll be fine. But from the first day of waking up on retreat, taking these things, I just felt like I wanted to vomit, and this lasted through the whole day until I went to bed at night. And it was like my whole world just collapsed into me and my stomach. And where's the nearest bucket? And where is there a door? And where is there a bathroom? And how am I I going to make it through this meeting with my teacher? Better not open my mouth too much because it was intense. (laughs) And after a few days of this, I realized it was like the whole world was just me and my stomach. And that was all I was thinking about. And it became pretty claustrophobic So I consciously made the effort to think, okay, who else right now in the world is experiencing nausea? There's probably millions of people right now. And I started to think of all the pregnant women who were experiencing morning sickness and all the sailors out at sea in storms who were experiencing seasickness and all the people going through chemotherapy who are unable to eat And all the people with hangovers who were saying, never again. (laughs) And I imagined these millions of people all over the world retching in unison. (laughs) And surprisingly, it's actually made it feel much better. There was a, a real lightness and even happiness when I thought of this. So it's, you know, as I said, a slightly gross, uh, lightweight example (laughs) of how wisdom and compassion can really support each other. Because when I could see clearly that my pain wasn't mine alone, paradoxically, it made it more bearable. It helped me to understand the truth of anatta, that nothing is personal and I'm not in control. So with this wisdom, there's a new sense of lightness and openness. And it was almost like there was literally more room in the heart and the mind for compassion to grow. So as the practice progresses, wisdom and compassion become more and more inseparable. And later on in the Buddhist tradition, as I think many of you know, these two come together in the expression of the bodhisattva ideal. The bodhisattva being someone who takes a vow to postpone their own freedom so that they can help others out of suffering too. (coughs) And whether or not this ideal resonates with us personally at this point in our practice, I think uh, we can still connect with the underlying understanding that all of this effort that we're making here, all of it benefits not only we ourselves, but everyone that we come into contact with. So just in that spirit of uh, helping us to connect with our deepest aspirations, I'd like to read you a few lines from the Bodhicaryavatara, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Apparently, His Holiness the Dalai Lama reads this uh, every day. It's a a long, it's a book, but I just read a few lines that I think convey this uh, compassion very powerfully. It says, May I be a protector for those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. So thank you for your attention. So I think we can take a few minutes now if there is any questions or comments. Is that right? Maybe one or two. And then we're setting up the potluck. Okay, great. So some of you might need to set up for the potluck. And if anyone has any comments or questions, one
1: and then Uh, one. Hi. Uh, So you're talking about uh, compassion and wisdom together, and um, compassion towards suffering is part of it. The wisdom part is realizing it's impermanent. Uh, I just came back from Vietnam. There are many people there through four generations. They have suffered uh, Agent Orange You have children with no limbs, or Mm -hmm. a baby with one eye, and are they supposed to realize that suffering is impermanent? I mean, they won't have legs; they will always have one eye, and there are also bombs and stuff in the ground still that are being uncovered. But I mean, I, I I'm having a lot of trouble when you say this. Is is it they're supposed to? Especially because our country, they were just living in their own country <laughs> yes, yes, and yes, we destroyed yes, it, yes, or yes, almost, you know. Yes, I mean, we did yes, enormous damage. Yes, yes, so to me, I, maybe I'm misunderstanding but it seems a little too easy. Here we are in the richest part of America. This is yes, one of the wealthiest yes, parts of America yes, yes. saying, well, you know, uh, they're suffering but it's impermanent. So yes, I'm having trouble yeah, with it. Can yeah, you help me? Yeah.
0: Well in terms of I mean, it's hard to know how the, the people themselves relate to their experience. Yeah. But in terms of how we relate to it, uh-huh. how, you know, it's finding a skillful way of acknowledging, as you are doing, it sounds like, just the enormous suffering. Mm-hmm. And is there something, how do I relate to that skillfully without you know becoming incapacitated by guilt or overwhelmed by rage or you know so how do i stay clear so i might see how can i respond in a way that's skillful am i able to give money to charity am i able to volunteer some time you know (laughs) so i'm doing
1: something next week okay great i'm having a garage sale the Mm money's going to go to this group that uh, finds the bombs that are not exploded in the landmines
0: Beautiful. So that's for me, from what you're sharing, a, a beautiful example of being moved by the pain, uh-huh. finding what you yourself can do, and then responding in a way that's skillful. Uh-huh. So is it's that. more
1: about my feeling of pain, not the actual pain of the people there. Is that what okay. you're when you talk about
0: yoga? Yeah. 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 Okay. Because, you know, we can't. Okay.
1: So you're talking about my feeling of pain, not the actual pain of the people there. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Because I don't We don't know, know it, it can what be
0: dangerous feel. to assume how somebody's relating to their situation uh-huh. when we don't know it from the inside, but as you are doing, you're taking responsibility for your responses and finding a skillful yeah. way of responding to the distress of that situation. Okay. Thank yeah. you. People leave um if they yes, sure, them, sure. If could come up and Okay. Yeah, that's great.